Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate Rundown. And, you know, it's really kind of neat today because I get to interview a gentleman who really is involved with what I started it and what I really believe in. So I'm going to bring Chad Griffin to the table and we're going to have some conversations about what's going on in industrial and why industrial might be a great thing for you to be in, recession or not, and why. It's a uh, pretty bulletproof industry, but let's talk about who Chad is. Chad has been involved as a real estate broker in the industry since 2005. We're going to have to have him explain why he started in 2005 as a broker, and it took him until 2014 to become an investor, but I'm sure there's a good story in there. And since then, he's done over 500 deals, 500 deals. That's a lot of deals. He would be considered an expert at that time frame. So guys, I want you to help me welcome Chad to the show. Chad, how are you, man? I'm doing very well, uh, Shannon. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to talk anything industrial real estate. <laughs> well, you know, that was really where I grew up. I mean, cutting my teeth in, uh, you know, my childhood and everything, being involved with my dad building industrial. But let's talk about you for a minute. Give us an oversight on where you came from, how you got involved in real estate. Take about five minutes and just kind of educate us on who Chad is and how he got to where he's at now. Yeah, great uh, way to tee up the conversation. So I, I didn't come from a real estate background at all. Actually, I had blue collar uh, parents uh, that had expectations that I would just go to university and get a job, which both of my sisters did. I took more of the entrepreneurial route. I was that kid selling hockey cards on the side of the road when I was 11 years old at a, at a landscaping business. And by landscaping business, I mean, I tried raking my neighbor's yards and charging them money for it. I was always right. that entrepreneurial kid. And uh, it ended up through a series of jobs, I actually dropped out of business school. So I was about to go that route, took a management position at a restaurant that I was working at instead, figured I'd, I'd like to learn business and, instead of doing it from an academics standpoint. Didn't last very long in that, but I started flipping some houses with some friends. Didn't really do well at that either, but I had an itch to get into real estate. So long story short, I ended up joining a commercial brokerage in 2005, which just so happened to be heavily involved in industrial real estate. That was the main focus. And I thought that I'd be working with sexy office towers or big shopping centers. And I got thrust into this environment where I had no idea what industrial real estate was. Much like a lot of people, I, I'm assuming there's people in your audience that are the similar. They might have a relatively vague idea of what industrial real estate is, but not detailed enough to actually try and make a living in it. So I had no choice but to follow along with people in the office that were doing this, uh, made a lot of mistakes along the way. But fast forward 17, 18 years now, I'm still the same company that I started at. I became a partner in 2014. And then I started investing late 2014 myself and with some partners and a whole lot of debt. We've got about a $20 million 
uh, portfolio right now. So we've, we're continuing to grow, basically trying to add one property a year. And for the foreseeable future, I'm, I'm very bullish on industrial real estate and, and I do it full time. I'm passionate about it. And I've got the majority of my net worth directly yeah. invested in it. Well, you know, and, and let's talk about perception because I agree with you, right? I mean, most people, when they think about what is industrial, they think of the cement plant, they think of, mm -hmm. you know, the smelting factory, they think of this heavy use industrial, cold, grimy, you know, place, but, you know, and, and I think a lot of people are starting to see it in a different light because now if you go and ask people what industrial is, they go, oh, well, it's Amazon last mile warehouses, right? It's these million square foot warehouses that you find in Tucson and find in Baltimore and, and these huge, huge things. But, but it's a lot of things, right? I mean, there's all different. I mean, there's as many different genres of industrial as there is in multifamily, whether you got a duplex, a fourplex, you know, 12 plex, a apartment complex, you know, uh, a single tower, you know, of, of industrial or of, of, of uh, residential living. But let's talk about what you found when you started diving in and really dissecting what is industrial and what did you start to see was the benefit of industrial that attracted you as an investor? Yeah, great question. I, along the way, I've, I've realized that every property is different and unique, but they still fall into similar subcategories of industrial. So I've, I've started grouping it into three different subcategories, warehousing being the first, and you're right, Amazon has dominated that conversation as late because there's a Amazon million square foot facility off the highway in every major city. So people are driving by these now as opposed to them traditionally being tucked away in industrial parks. But it can be anywhere from a million square foot Amazon facility all the way down to a 2000 square foot warehouse bay that's just used to store some type of product. So anything warehouse related, I would say it's basically storage, repackaging, and then getting shipped out. So truck brings stuff in, it's packaged, stored for some period of time, and then gets sent out. So anywhere from a 2000 square foot to a 2 million square foot warehouse. The other major one is manufacturing. And that's kind of the one you talked about. Uh, earlier it could be any anywhere from heavy manufacturing uh the one facility that i just walked through the other day used to be a fiberglass manufacturing facility and it was 48 foot ceilings the process involved in making all this was incredibly complex but these manufacturing facilities can also be very basic it can be a 2000 square foot welding shop or it can be a 2000 square foot cnc machining shop it can really even be an automotive bay so that manufacturing space i'd say is where anything is made produced assembled manufactured as you will uh so it's typically going to be like a medium to heavier industrial versus light industrial of a warehouse where things are just stored and then the third category would be flex space is what most people are calling it uh flex space is a miscellaneous catch-all and this is where you really start getting into how broad industrial real estate can be because you can look at bottle depots, self-storage. Some industrial buildings are built out entirely as office space. I've seen industrial buildings that were retrofitted to be art galleries in major suburban markets. So their industrial properties can actually fit a wide array of businesses. There's almost no business out there that couldn't fit in some type of industrial property. So once you start looking at how broad that category is, in my mind, it opens up a lot of opportunities, but it also opens up a lot of risks. So if if you look at it, if you buy a well-positioned industrial property and it's versatile enough that it can essentially lease to any amount of different tenants out there, you've got a lot of opportunity to attract tenants if the existing tenant leaves. 
Conversely, there's a lot of risk with it. Going back to that fiberglass manufacturing facility I just went through, if that property was specifically built for the tenant that was in there, when that tenant eventually leaves, and every tenant is going to leave at some point, it might be one year, it might be 40 years, but every tenant is eventually going to leave the building. What is the prospects of releasing that property down the road? And I've got countless stories of, of investors that had property that was specifically built for one one tenant. And when that tenant left, it cost them a lot of money in, in retrofitting that for the next tenant. And in quite often, it's also accompanied by having it vacant for a period of time. So I love it from the standpoint that I think if you are an educated investor, you know exactly what you're getting into and you know that market really well, and you can avoid those pitfalls, tremendous amount of opportunity. But if you get into it green and you don't have systems in place to make sure you really understand what you're buying, it also comes with a tremendous amount of risk. So full spectrum can be a great yeah. investment. It can also be a terrible investment for the wrong investor. You know, and I and I agree with you on that. You know, we, we I just bought a building uh, that I'm going to repurpose that had a bail bondsman, a bookstore, an aquarium, and a gymnasium. Wow, you know, that's a, that's a I mean, diverse group of tenants. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but I mean, we we also do a lot of flex space. You know, we've got people that I mean, flex space for me is very popular because when you do have that Amazon guy that moves out of two million square feet, mm -hmm. you've got to find other large users, and usually. Uh, users tend to grow and constrict at the same time, right? So if you're dealing with shipping and receiving, uh, like Amazon, they're all growing until they're all constricting, right? Uh, in in just the sub market of who the EC is. But you know what I've seen is that is that flex space, that you know that repurposing space. I've seen a lot of things done very creatively. Like you said, I've seen self storage go into old buildings where you've had the pods that are being stored and all different kinds of uses, but you know, there, you, you said something there about how, you know, to assess the risks, and there are ways to assess the risk. When you're looking at purchasing an industrial property, what are some of the risk factors that you look at when you're looking at how to decide what that cap rate is and how that, how that purchase price is going to lay out? Yeah, a great topic because I think that there is a methodology that people, investors can follow. And, and not only do I think that they it's something that they can follow. I think it's something that they should follow. Every investor, irrespective of the asset class, should have a system in place. And industrial is no different. I look at industrial first from the standpoint that I want to understand what my downside risk is before I start analyzing what any of the upside potential might be. So before I start getting into a pro forma and figuring out what my five or 10 year cash flow is going to look like and making all the assumptions that come with it, first I want to understand what my true downside risk is. And this is where industrial is fairly unique. Uh, unlike retail or office or multifamily, if you've got a property in a good area, there's a good chance that you'll find a tenant at some point. Industrial is different. If you don't fully understand what that asset is at a fundamental level, then you could get stuck holding a property that repurposing is, is a great way of, of describing it. I, I have one client that cost them a million dollars to repurpose an industrial building. It's a larger property, so the, the numbers scale in proportion of the size. But it, it, there's not many investors that can just go and handle a $1 million uh, retrofit cost. So before I do any any forecasting, I want to understand what is that property worth if it was vacant? Even if I'm buying a property with a 10-year tenant in there, what's that property worth if that company went out of business, if they decided that uh, they, they just wanted to leave at the end of their term? I, I, I'm a firm believer that every tenant will leave the building at some point. So you need to have Absolutely. a, a salt a solid understanding of what is that building worth? And that just takes, that's an exercise of going through that building, 
identifying the strengths, identifying any weaknesses, identifying any things that might have to be corrected. And I hate to keep going back to this fiberglass facility, but it's, it's a relevant example. The, what the process involved in their fiberglass manufacturing meant that they had these sub basements underneath the main, uh, the concrete floor. And there, there was unusable to every other tenant that was in there. So it was a, it was a massive cost among other things, just to go and fill in those, those concrete holes that were in the floor going to the sub basement. So if you have a really good understanding of what the property is, and you can say, if this tenant were to leave tomorrow, here's all the other properties that are on the market. I believe that this one has the, over, the loading doors are, are comparable to the market. The yard space is comparable. There's adequate marshalling area for trucks to get in and out. Ceiling height's the right height. There's the right power that's in there. If you can identify the core things that a tenant's looking for and recognize that there's always going to be some things that you're going to have to address when a new tenant comes in. But as long as you can keep that to a minimum or have it even cosmetic for the most part, you don't have to make, you, have, you don't have to bring in more power because your building is underpowered compared to what comparable properties are. As long as you can identify that this is what I think the property would lease for if I if, if it went vacant, or this is what it's worth if I had to sell it, then you can at least realize your downside risk. So if you're buying a property, maybe there's a 10-year tenant in there and you're getting, let's just say $10 a square foot. If that that's great and you could model out your pro forma on that, but what happens if that property is only worth eight? What happens if the rest of the market is saying we're, uh, comparable properties are going for eight dollars a square foot? Well, there's your potential downside risk in my right. mind, and things can look a lot different ten years out when that cash flow uh, is up and the term is up. But what happens? What happens if that tenant left? And you had to release it at eight dollars a square foot. Well, you in, just going on a simple cap, you just lost twenty percent of your of your market value instantly, right. that quickly. So that's right. that, that's the biggest thing that I always recommend is fully understand what that property is worth vacant before you start making any assumptions and building on a pro forma. You know, and that's one of the big differences that people look at when they look at multifamily versus industrial, right? Because, I mean, if you went to a bank and you 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 know that if you went to a bank and said, hey, I'm going to buy this, this, this industrial building that has less than a year left on the lease, the bank wouldn't touch it, right? Or they would condition it so badly because of all those things. If you went to them and said, hey, I got this great multifamily building, there's 80 units in it, same value as Chad's industrial building over here. Uh, but good news, the good news is all of these leases expire in the next 18 months or 12 months. They, the bank would be all over it because it is much easier to look at multifamily and go, that's a three-bedroom, two-bath. That's a three-bedroom, two-bath, and we can now figure out what that is, where some of these things that you just talked about, where this is a fiberglass facility or you know it's a cement yard or it's these kinds of things, there's intrinsic value there to a particular set of users, but not to a lot of users. And so that's, that's, that's a huge downside potential. Let's talk about some of the positives that, that industrial brings you. And you've talked about it several times, 10-year leases. Let's talk about long-term effects of what an industrial property does for you that maybe multifamily doesn't. Yeah. And, and I do want to emphasize, I'm not trying to scare everybody off oh, by no. saying these no. negative parts, but I, I think having that healthy amount of fear can save people from making a big mistake. And, and I think the reason people are willing to accept some amount of risk is because all the re reasons that you mentioned are that there is a lot of positives, uh, particularly mm -hmm. when compared to multifamily. 
So tenure leases are quite common. And even the way that leases are structured is also important. Where in multifamily, you're typically just charging a gross rate to the tenant and perhaps they pay utilities on top of that, or maybe utilities are included, but they're paying one amount. And that's inclusive of property taxes, the insurance, common area maintenance, everything that that's required to operate that building it's a gross amount you're typically paying you're typically getting a one-year term from a residential tenant they're they're low credit tenants as, as we talked about before uh this call so you contrast that to an industrial lease you could have a 10-year lease with a high credit in theory a fortune 500 company or at least a company you can audit and check their financial statements and the way the lease is structured is that they're typically, and, and the terminology can vary across different markets, but in essence, they're all going to be structured what's called a triple net lease. And the idea about a triple net lease is the tenant's going to pay one amount called their basic rent or their net rent. Again, it might be called triple net rent in some places. That's the rent that's contract contractually obligated to pay to the landlord every year. It can be a set amount. So it can be $10 a square foot based on the whole square footage. It, it can be that flat for the whole term. There can be escalations in there. So perhaps it goes from $10 a square foot to $12 a square foot by the end of the term. Those numbers are contractually agreed upon between the two parties. Then the tenant is also responsible for paying their proportionate share of all the operating expenses of the property. And if it's just one tenant in the building, then they just pay all of it. If there's two tenants in the building, then assuming they have half the space each, they pay 50% of all these expenses. But again, that's typically going to be property taxes, building insurance, common area maintenance, such as landscaping, snow removal in my neck of the woods, not in yours, right. uh, but right. uh, 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 that's common area expenses and management fees. That's another yeah. one that's actually quite often gets put into uh, that uh, operating costs or additional rent. And the the concept behind that is that the tenants also pay any associated increase in those expenses. So if property right. taxes go up 10% next year, instead of that eroding the amount of money that the landlord would have been getting in a gross lease, that gets passed through to the tenant, again, on a proportionate basis. So a, a landlord knows what their base or triple net rent is up front. They know that's set for the whole term of the lease. And then any increases in the cost of operating that property get passed through to the tenant. So as an investor myself, I would much rather have a property where I know that any increases in, in costs aren't going to erode the amount that I need coming in from that net rent to either service debt or just to rely on on cash flow. So I think that that's, that's one of the most important uh, elements of industrial and commercial real estate in general. Yeah, you know, and, and one of the things that I love to highlight there, I don't know how you write your leases, but we write out, we've done this for 25 years. We've written our leases with CPI increases, right? And nobody cared about CPI until <laughs> last year, right? And, and then all of a sudden, when we see consumer price index, which is what CPI stands for, going up seven, eight, nine percent, that means that my leases are going to increase nine percent next year. Right. So so while I'm able to keep pace with what's going on, I'm also not liable for the property taxes going up 10 percent, like you said. Right. Mm -hmm. If we have uh, in Idaho, we was about four years ago, we had a snowmageddon event where we had more snow than anybody had ever seen in you know 20 years. And we had uh, on one of our buildings, we had twenty four thousand dollars worth of snow removal. Wow. Well, if I was in the multifamily world, I'm eating that. Right. I'm, I'm shoveling it because I made an agreement with my tenants and that's just what it is in the industrial space. It it really plays out that people, they appreciate that because it's their place of business. You know, the other thing that we saw in 2008 was people were losing their houses, but they weren't giving up their places of business because they still had to make money. Right. And so those long term tenants, they understood what it meant to own a home versus rent a home. 
They could do that elsewhere, but they knew, they knew that they could not move their business and still be profitable. Right. Mm -hmm. And so during that whole time period, we saw a very, very small number of people actually close their businesses and, and go away uh, it, during that same time period. And when they did, we had personal guarantees. We had corporate guarantees. We had access to real funds. And so those, those examples that you kind of just threw out there are really, really important because we've all had that tenant in multifamily that trashes the place. We got $3,000 worth of damage and, and a $900 security deposit. And now we can go to small claims court and there's nothing that this person owns. We can get a judgment. There's nothing to attach to. Where in the industrial world, I have tenants that uh, they've been bought by a larger operation. They're vacant in the space. They have moved completely out, but they still pay the rent because they know they have the corporate guarantee, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really a, a different space. Let, let's talk about some of the, give us a couple of, of stories of, of successes that you've had in the industrial space, whether yourself as an investor or or your clients, where you've been able to see the, the real advantages of making these uh, industrial deals that have worked very well for your clients? Yeah, I'd say I've, I have stories of clients that have been very successful in repurposing and adding value to a property and then putting a tenant in it and then in selling it or refinancing it. That's pretty common. I actually don't look at my own portfolio as, as trying to hit home runs. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm an investor. I just want to hit singles and doubles and given enough yeah. time, you hit enough singles and doubles for using a baseball analogy, you will drive home runs and you'll yeah. win the, win the investing game if you're just patient enough. So I, even in my own portfolio, it's, I, I haven't had any home runs on it, but we've even through the pandemic, we didn't lose a single tenant. We had to give a little bit of uh, rent deferral, but we didn't have to abate any rent. Uh, and those tenants subsequently uh, caught up on their rent. So we had no no lost income during, yeah. in those first three months of the pandemic, which were really uncertain. We still didn't lose a single penny over the, once the tenants got caught up. And it's been a very stable asset class. So every every year we're paying down a good chunk of principal. We're cash flowing and we've got properties in all different types of companies, but we're accumulating cash in all these holding companies. Yeah. The, the asset value is going up every time as we're increasing our rents. So I, I, I would say that industrial real estate, th there's a couple of things that I really like about it as an investor myself. First, it's a lot easier to scale. So if you compare, so one property in our portfolio is about a $3 million building. We have a Fortune 500 company as the single tenant in there, and they've got four years left on their lease or so. Compare that to a multifamily property of a, call it a multifamily property, I'm guessing $3 million would probably get you 20 units or so. Give sure. or take 150 grand a door, get more or less, but let's just say it's uh, 20 tenants. So can you imagine the differences between managing 20 residential tenants and all the turnover and all the issues that come up with it versus the single industrial tenant who's a large international company who takes care of everything on their own? It requires very little management on, on our behalf versus that 20 unit apartment complex. So it's a lot easier to scale investments when you can add one tenant at $3 million and, and you don't need nearly as much management infrastructure as you do right. with that 20 unit apartment building. And, and I think from the standpoint that if you can prepare by having those longer term tenants in there and, and really just look at the long-term objective as opposed to having to constantly refill residential units and the, and the, brain capacity and the anguish that just comes with dealing with that many residential tenants. I just like the long-term aspect. So there's undoubtedly 
huge success stories out there of people that have hit home runs. They buy a property at call it $4 million. They add value to it in the form of renovation or, or just repurposing it. They get a tenant in that was 20% higher than what they, what they expected with the old building. And then they refinance it and, and sell it out. There's plenty of stories like that. Yeah. That also just comes with more risk too. You're typically buying a, a vacant building. Uh, there's just risk that comes with that. I I'm just, I'm a very conservative cash flow investor. Yeah. I, I want to get properties. I can get cash flow in right away and hit those singles. You know, and, and that's really the thing too. I mean, this is, I think of all the asset classes, industrials, the most like Chef Tony, right? You set it and you forget it because you can literally read the lease and you know what you're going to have for longevity. You know what you're going to have for rent increases. You know what your broad stroke is in the market as far as who else would want it. And, you know, just this analogy that you talked about, you've got 40 toilets versus maybe six toilets, just the toilet count. Right of your of your analogy of of the the one tenant in a three million dollar building, and then you start to to pile stuff in there like lending costs, right? Because lenders love long term leases, they love corporate guarantees, they love those kinds of things, so they're willing to go with a rate that is locked longer. In fact, I know that you can get industrial uh, loans for twenty five years, locked and amortized for twenty five years. You can't do that in multifamily unless you go with a HUD product, which takes you know forever and a day to get. But they love it because you can literally sit there and go, I locked my loan in. I'm making 7% this year. I'm going to take a 4% rent increase next year. And I'm going to do that for eight more years. And here I am. I can map this out. I don't have the fluctuations in the market. I don't have my tenant trying to leave. I don't have them you know, doing all the damage and all those other things in most cases. And it really is something that allows you to get involved in an asset class that you don't have to pay a lot of attention to. You don't have to have a full-time management staff. You don't have to do all these things because most of these people also, I think this is a big, big thing. And I learned this really, really early on when I was building a few houses and doing some industrial stuff. Most people that are looking for the, for the space for their business are tolerant of a plug toilet for a period much longer than a person is tolerant of the same plug toilet in their home, right? Mm -hmm. Because even if they're tenants, they are still, this is still their personal space. It's their personal property. There's that love and attachment to it. The business guys, they're looking at it going, I need a roof over my head and I need the tables here so I can assemble my packages or do whatever it is I do. I'm I'm purely looking at this from a business standpoint. It's a much different love and attachment. And as, a, as an investor, I know that every time the property taxes increase, I'm not worried about it, right? So I, I love it for all of those kind of assets uh, or all of those reasons that the asset is super stable. You know, it's super stable. It also, like you said, isn't going to go shooting up or shooting down, right? I mean, it just isn't going to move a lot. It's it's a tortoise in the hair, right? I mean, we saw multifamily going nuts. And, and like we discussed, I do a lot of multifamily. I do a lot of multifamily. Industrial is just something you can't hardly miss with because it does do that steady eddy stuff. So, you know, I, I really appreciate your insight and, and how you've broken this down for us and allowed people to understand that there, while there are risks, there's a lot of things that you should really consider about multifamily that really kind of puts things in perspective and makes it steady so that as you're looking for cash flow, 
This is a great thing for cash flow because it just continues to do what it does, what it does, what it does, right? But before we let you out of here, Chad, how can my listeners find you in the great world wide web? Yeah, so I, as you can tell, I just love talking about industrial real estate. So I've got a YouTube channel where it's the sole focus of the channel is just trying to provide information on on the industry. I don't talk, I've never even mentioned what company I work for. I don't mention what city I live in for the sole reason I just want it to be a, a value add experience for someone that wants to learn more. So if you just search industrial real estate on YouTube, you'll find my channel because I, I think I'm the only person that's talking about it regularly. <laughs> uh, so that, that's probably the best way or I'm also active on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. Well, Chad, I sure appreciate it. And guys, if you want to know how you can get a hold of Chad, we can definitely put you directly in touch with him. Send me an email at connect at shannonrobnet.com. We'll get you straight to Chad. If you'd like to get this uh, episode on a regular basis, please subscribe where you're finding this. Otherwise, guys, we'll look to have you guys tune back in to another episode of the Real Estate Rundown. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. That's a wrap for today's episode of The Real Estate Rundown. Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnet.com and be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode.